Racial and ethnic health disparities have been heavy on our hearts over the past few years, as they rightfully should be. As occupational therapy practitioners, we have much to reckon with, not only in terms of our own personal biases, but also regarding the structural inequities within healthcare. In today's episode, we'll zoom in on one particular diagnosis and population, and we'll look at how the Latino community is impacted by disparities around the diagnosis and care of autistic children. We'll begin by reviewing some research on this subject, and then we'll bring on our two expert guests, Catherine Hoyt and Christina Reyes-Smith. We'll discuss practical implications for caring for our autistic Latino clients, including how we can be working step-by-step to dismantle the disparities in our healthcare systems. Let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT research and then invite on expert guests to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this week's topic, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. You can sign in or sign up at otpotential.com to take a test to generate a certificate once you've listened to this entire episode. And bearing in mind that this could count as a continuing education course, I did want to explicitly state our two learning objectives for today so that you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast. Our objectives today are that you will be able to identify barriers to autism supports that disproportionately impact Latino families. And second, you will be able to recognize how unmet needs for autistic patients vary by ethnicity and English proficiency. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we'll bring on Christina and Catherine to discuss how this research can play out in your practice. The article that we're looking at today is called Disparities in Diagnosis and Treatment of Autism in Latino and Non-Latino White Families. This article is found in the journal Pediatrics. It was published in 2017, and it is ranked 32nd on our list of the 100 most influential OT research articles. So to begin with, I actually just wanted to start with a personal note on language usage because I really struggled as I was preparing for this podcast to know how to approach language around race and ethnicity. And I kept going back and forth on whether I should use the term Latino or the term Latine, which is a gender neutral term and growing in popularity but still not widely used within the Latino community or really widely used at large. And during this time, I also stumbled on some updated guidance on reporting race and ethnicity from JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, which I'll link to in our show notes. And based on reading that and conversation, I decided just to reflect the language in this article. But we'll talk about that a little bit more with expert guests. So now we'll start with where the article starts, which is with an introduction to racial and ethnic disparities in autism care. So based on past research, we certainly know that these racial and ethnic disparities exist in autism diagnosis and then in care. Yet we don't fully understand why these disparities exist. And that's something that they're really trying to understand in research. So as we work on dismantling these disparities, we can really address the root causes that are going on here. The introduction to this article hits you with quite a few past research takeaways, which provide really helpful context for understanding our current situation. I'm just going to go through some of the most important takeaways to kind of set the stage for this discussion. So in the introduction, they highlight that past research has shown us that racial and ethnic disparities exist in the diagnosis and treatment of autism spectrum disorder, and particularly in Latino children. The ASD diagnosis is made less often among Latino children compared to white children. And Latino children are diagnosed before the age of four less than white children. 
And when autistic Latino children are diagnosed, they are more likely than white children to have severe presentations. And then after diagnosis, autistic Latino children receive fewer evidence-based treatments than white children. And I wanted to highlight something that we know as occupational therapy professionals, which is that this early diagnosis that they're talking about is really key. Evidence suggests that prompt ASD diagnosis and treatment improves long-term developmental and family outcomes. So when these Latino families aren't receiving the timely diagnosis and care that they need, we're setting them up for further inequities as they move through the healthcare system. So as I mentioned previously, the research is just clear that this disparity exists and that it needs to be addressed. But unfortunately, the research that explores the root cause of these disparities is much more limited. We do know from just broader research on health disparities that the causes tend to be pretty multifactorial and pretty complex. There has been some research done that was more specific to this disparity in the diagnosis and treatment of autistic Latino kids. And this past research has indicated that providers are less likely to screen Spanish-speaking children for ASD versus English-speaking children, that families that speak Spanish as their primary language receive less family-centered care than white families, and that commonly used ASD diagnostic tools may function differently when used with Latino clients. But something missing from this picture around the root cause of this disparity is how the families themselves perceive barriers to their care and how these barriers to diagnosis and care impact the overall treatment course, which leads us to this paper. So why was this paper written? The author's intent was to contribute to the research by asking, how do self-reported barriers vary by both ethnicity and English proficiency? for autistic families. And how were these barriers then associated with the care that was provided? To carry out this research, parents were surveyed from three different ASD clinics in Los Angeles, Denver, and Portland. All these families had a child aged two to 10 who had an ASD diagnosis that was confirmed in the last five years. And the survey that they were given had 34 items that were related to potential barriers to ASD diagnosis and treatment, their current therapy use, and their beliefs about autism. So what were the results of this survey and this research? 352 families shared data via the survey. These responses were all coded as being in three different groups, or according to the guidelines I mentioned earlier in our podcast, we'll refer to that group as white. That was 46% of the respondents. 27% were Latino English proficient and 27% were Latino limited English proficiency. So they took all the surveys, broke them into these three groups, and then they looked at kind of three broad categories, which were first, barriers to ASD care, second, treatment and unmet needs, and third, the association between the barriers, treatment and unmet needs. So let's start by looking at the barriers to ASD care. So basically related to the barriers, the survey had 15 possible barriers and the families were able to select how many applied to them. And what's really interesting is between all three of those groups that I just mentioned, they all had a mean of eight barriers, meaning that ethnicity or English proficiency really didn't impact how many barriers they selected. And really, there was a pattern among all three groups of which barriers were the most commonly cited. I do list all of the barriers in the article summary in the club. I'm not going to read them all here, but just to give you a sense of the most common ones, of all the survey respondents, 75% said that the stress of the diagnostic process was a barrier. 71% said parent knowledge about ASD was a barrier. 66% said understanding of the medical system was a barrier. And then the percentages kind of decreased from there. And I do want to mention the three least commonly cited barriers because that's going to come up a little later. The availability of interpreters was only checked by 8% of participants. Quality of needed interpreters was only checked by 7%. And providers thinking problems were due to non-English language was only 5%. 
And one last thing that I want to note about the barriers was the authors did highlight that when the answers were sorted by the three groups, that one of the differences that emerged was the most common barrier among white families was stress of the diagnostic process. And the most common barrier among both Latino groups was parent knowledge about ASD. But again, overall, in all three groups, both of these problems were reported by a really high percentage of families. So the second just broad category that they looked at these surveys responses with was about the treatment and the unmet needs. And again, this was similar because there were a lot of similarities between the three groups in terms of their treatment use. So they asked the families about first the types of treatment that they were receiving. And it was really interesting. Again, there was just like a lot of similarity between the three groups and what type of therapy they were referred to, for example, in occupational therapy use, there was no statistical difference between the three groups. All three received close to the same amount of OT care. But when they dug it a little deeper, there were two really important things that stood out. First, a significantly higher percentage of Latino limited English proficiency families reported unmet therapy needs. And that was 60% of those respondents versus 40% for white families. And secondly, a significantly higher percentage of Latino limited English proficiency families were in the lowest tier of hours of care, which was less than one or no hours of care in a week. And that leads us to the third broad category, which is associations between barriers, treatments, and unmet needs. And this section is really where the statistics get more fancy, and you'll have to read the article for the full details. But for our purposes here, the results here indicated that even when families with limited English proficiency experience the same number of barriers as the other groups, they still had these worse outcomes and that they found that they were more likely to be in this lower tier of hours of care received, that less than one or no hours, and they still had more unmet needs than their white counterparts, which leads us to the author's discussion and conclusions. There was a lot to unpack in this study, and I definitely want to refer you back for all their takeaways. But kind of the main conclusion was that the numbers from these surveys showed that really all surveyed families experienced substantial barriers to ASD diagnosis and care. And interestingly enough, they all experienced about the same number of barriers. But the Latino limited English proficiency families experience these barriers disproportionately, leading to more unmet needs and fewer therapy hours. Thus, the authors concluded that English proficiency was an important marker related to barriers to diagnosis and treatment. The conclusion does give several good recommendations, and I wanted to highlight two specific ones that felt especially relevant to OT providers. First, they recommended that therapy providers in areas with large Latino populations should employ bilingual and multicultural staff. This can help engender trust and assist with connecting families to ASD services. And secondly, they recommended that pediatric therapy providers should be educated in identifying the early signs of ASD, as well as how to discuss ASD in culturally appropriate ways. So I wrote my initial takeaways from this research in our article review in the OT Potential Club, but now I really want to swing our attention to bringing on our expert guests to really help us digest this research and discuss how it applies to our own practices. So it is my honor today to be welcoming on two guests to help us discuss this important topic, Christina and Catherine. And I want to give you a quick bio on both of them before I welcome them on, beginning with Dr. Christina Reyes-Smith. She is a graduate of the Occupational Therapy Doctorate Program at Thomas Jefferson University and the Master's in Occupational Therapy Program at the Medical University of South Carolina. She has over 15 years of experience in community health promotion, program development, and volunteer service to underserved communities. She currently works as an assistant professor and director of admissions for the Medical University of South Carolina College of Health Professionals Division of Occupational Therapy. She has served as faculty advisor for the College of Health Professionals Student Diversity Leadership Council and for their interprofessional Spanish club. 
Dr. Smith was recently elected to the board of directors of the American Occupational Therapy Association. She has conducted presentations and published articles about workforce diversity, cultural competence and sensitivity, and related topics for local, state, and national venues. She's also integrated these concepts on campus through presentations in her professional course electives and student research groups. She coordinates her university's culturally sensitive care program, which is open to all university students, faculty, and staff. And we are also welcoming on Catherine Hoyt. Dr. Hoyt is the founding director and a founding member of COTAD, which is a coalition of occupational therapy advocates for diversity. She focuses on developing strategies to identify effective methods of diversity education and strategic growth of CODAD initiatives to support CODAD's mission. She graduated from Washington University in St. Louis with a PhD in Rehabilitation and Participation Science in 2019 from Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Hoyt was part of the 2012 cohort of AOTA Emerging Leaders Program and has served on several volunteer committees to support pediatric practice and future visioning for AOTA. In addition to her growing body of research related to early identification and intervention for developmental delay, Dr. Hoyt is also a dedicated clinician and entrepreneur. She has a patent on a pencil grip and several products on the market for pediatric therapy. She is the owner of My Little Sunshine Pediatric Therapy in St. Louis and serves on the advisory board for Southpot Enterprises, WearWorks, Inc., and Stega. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome on Dr. Smith and Dr. Hoyt. Catherine and Christina, it's so great to have you on the podcast this morning. I've never had two guests before, so to help us anchor to your two different voices, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves quick? I just read your bio, so maybe just the main gig that you're doing in your life right now. And Christina, why don't you start us off? Sure. I'm Christina Reyes-Smith. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us, Sarah. I'm an assistant professor at the Medical University of South Carolina in the Division of Occupational Therapy, the doctorate programs there. I teach in the entry-level and post-professional OTD programs, and I also serve as admissions director there. I did previously have a company for about eight years, Vita Bella Services. We did have to close down last November, sadly, but we were able to serve a number of individuals from the Hispanic Latino community at that time. And then how about you, Catherine? Thank you so much for having me. My name is Catherine Hoyt, and I am in the research division at Washington University School of Medicine in the Program of Occupational Therapy and the Department of Pediatrics and Neurology. My research is focused on early identification of developmental delay in children that have had a neurological injury. And I am owner of My Little Sunshine Pediatric Therapy here in St. Louis, Missouri. Awesome. Well, as I read your guys' bio, I'm just like, these are the perfect people to be talking to about this research in front of us today. And something that really stood out to me in both of your different bios was how much advocacy work you've done over your careers. And I think to kind of start us off, I was really curious just to hear a little bit about the story of how you got involved in advocacy as an occupational therapy professional. Mm -hmm. When we think about racial and ethnic health disparities, it can be such a sobering topic and such a sobering history. What gave you the courage and the push early in your career to look at this head on and want to do something about it? Again, Christina, can we start with you on that? So my background is my parents grew up in Puerto Rico. I grew up here in Charleston, South Carolina. And so growing up between cultures, I always had some difficulty kind of feeling like I fit in to either one or the other. And it wasn't until I was a young adult that I really found an identity as a Hispanic American, as it was called at that time. The terminology has changed, but we'll talk a little bit about that in a bit. So with regard to advocacy within occupational therapy as an OT student, I was looking to interact with other people who were also passionate about this area and other underserved communities as well. And I ended up starting an organization at our university called the Alliance for Hispanic Health of MESC. 
And so that was a fantastic opportunity. We had great, great enthusiasm and were able to have a number of different initiatives. And in occupational therapy, I was also looking for others who were passionate around this area. I did spend a little bit of time with some of the MDI networks and todos were occupational therapists from Latino backgrounds. And it was through the Emerging Leaders Program, through the AOTA, where Catherine and I were in the same cohort back in 2012, almost 10 years ago. And we instantly connected. We had great passion around this community, other communities, but also I think our approaches were very similar as well in that we were seeking collaboration, solution-orientedness, trying to not just identify where the issues were, but trying to identify how we could overcome them as a profession, as individuals, and through collaboration. And so that, where in my career, I was going towards studying autism and pediatric neuroscience, but through those early days of the Coalition of Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity, which we were able to be co-founders of, Catherine was the founding chair for the first six and a half years that it was going. And it's just done such an incredible job with that. I've had three young children that have been growing up. My daughter is seven. She's the same age as Kotad. And so it's just been so fantastic to be a part of that. And our friendship has really blossomed. And so my career at that time really took a pretty drastic turn in this direction. And I had started the company at that point as well. But this really ended up being where the needs were. And so COTAD really helped to grow with the nationwide engagement through COTAD Ed for Educators, COTAD Student Chapters. We have a mentorship program as well. We've had an annual service project that's been initiated as well as a COTAD State Initiative. And I really am stealing Catherine's thunder because this has all been thanks to her leadership her commitment, her hard work and diligence to help move forward this area in our profession. Yeah, I love being able to have you both on because even from afar, when I see the work of COTAD, I'm like, this is an amazing team. You can just Mm -hmm. feel that unified energy. So Catherine, I'm curious if you have a similar story, if you were actively looking for like-minded people? How did you get started in advocacy within your occupational therapy career? Yeah, thank you. I think actually my story aligns with Christina's in many ways. I came to occupational therapy already with a passion for advocacy. That is why I became an occupational Mm -hmm. therapist, even though I didn't necessarily have that language at that time. My grandparents immigrated to the United States during World War II, and my family comes from many, many different backgrounds. And as a child, we did foster care. And so that, to me, was really formative in seeing how many children could benefit from not occupational therapy specific at that time, but from rehabilitation services, but weren't getting it. And that is what drove me to become an occupational therapist was seeing children in foster care that needed the supports in the home environment, but weren't able to get it for whatever reasons. And I knew that that existed out there and that there was a need for greater inclusion and greater equity in how we provide services. And so I pursued getting into school and becoming an occupational therapist. And then shortly thereafter, I met Christina at the Emerging Leaders Program with AOTA, and we were talking about this inequity in access to services and how that is a major problem. And what can we do about that for our profession? How can we grow our profession so that more people could benefit from these services that we would love to provide for them? Mm -hmm. And from that conversation came our first presentation at AOTA in 2014, I believe it was, on just how did people get to occupational therapy and how do we develop a more diverse workforce? And we viewed it as that first step was letting people know how do we inform more diverse populations about occupational therapy. And so maybe we should start by telling stories. And then after that, we started with collecting data. And that data came from interviews and surveys with practitioners, educators, students, and that told us that people were eager for opportunities to be involved, 
opportunities for students to connect and collaborate together to make meaningful change in their local environments. And people needed to connect with others for that one-on-one support. And from that grew the COTAD mentorship program, the COTAD chapters program, and our online educational initiatives like the Ignite series last year, for example. Well, I love hearing both of your stories because I think for so many OTs, we come to occupational therapy with some kind of heart for advocacy, whatever issue it's focused on. But I think sometimes as OT practitioners, we can get out of touch with that side of ourselves. Like maybe we don't meet the right team or group like you guys did. And sometimes we can get in the middle of seeing these issues and they can seem so overwhelming. So it's very inspiring for me to be talking to you two and hearing how you've been able to find like-minded people and really channel that energy in such productive ways. And I'm excited to keep talking about that a little bit more in the podcast. Before we turn to the article, I wanted to talk just really quickly about the use of language. I know we could have a whole podcast dedicated to this, but as I was writing the review for this article, first, whenever I'm writing about autism, I'm trying to be really sensitive to use identity-affirming language, use the word autistic when I can. So that's always a challenge in itself. And then as I was talking about the Latino culture, wondering about the right words to use in that writing as well. So the terminology regarding Latino, Hispanic, Latino, Latinx, Latine, Latin, different terms have been evolving for quite some time now. And a lot of it is reflective of the challenge of identifying and categorizing groups of people that really do have different countries, different languages, different racial spectrums, even different cultural aspects related to religion, routines, occupation. And so historically, in the past, the U.S. Census had used the term Hispanic in, I believe it was the 80s, I want to say. And then a little later on in the late 90s or 2000s, Latino was the new terminology that was provided. And then within the last 10 years or so, Hispanic Latino has been separated out from race and ethnicity, where previously the two were combined together. And so it recognizes this diversity and this intersectionality. That's a term that's being used and more widely researched now, looking at the intersection of multiple identities related to gender, related to country of origin, language, all these different aspects. And so with Latino, it implies coming from the root of Latin as a language, but it also can imply coming from Latin America, which encompasses many groups, but many also who have different dialects of Spanish, some who speak Portuguese, don't even speak Spanish at all in the first place. And then you also have individuals from Spain, which is, of course, in Europe, that have this other identity, but there is still something that unifies these groups of people. And when we get into race, we have light-skinned individuals, dark-skinned individuals, people all across the middle of those. And then with the LGBTQIA plus movement, with gender neutral focuses on pronouns, that is where Latinx really came in primarily with younger generations, but that term has not been embraced widespread across Mm -hmm. multiple generations. And some people really have negative feelings towards it. So most recently, this Latin or Latine term is similar to estudiante, which is in Spanish student, and it can be either male, female, or neither. And so that may be where we go in the future, but for now it is evolving. And most importantly, it's important to ask the individual or the group, the community there, how they wish to be identified. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels like in so many aspects of our lives right now, we need to be working on the skill of having conversations about 
things that can feel a little sticky and be okay with being corrected too. Like if I use the wrong term in a context, I want someone to be able to say that to me. And that's just the nature of where language is so evolving and changing and hopefully it's refining. We're just all going to be on a learning curve there. I want to start turning like specifically to the article, this disparities in supports for autism in Latino families. All three of us have read it. And I was curious to get your guys' just general impression of the research, maybe starting with you, Catherine. Sure. I would say that reading the article, I was excited to read that people were looking into these types of questions, particularly because I think in research and in clinical practice, we tend to make a lot of assumptions about what people need and what they want and where their concerns lie. One of the most interesting things to me that popped out was their investigation and asking about what the barriers were to accessing care and accessing early intervention and those early identification services. And what a lot of the caregivers and the parents reported was that they were really seeking more education, more knowledge about the diagnosis and about the healthcare system in general. And it wasn't necessarily some of those things that we think about a lot, like transportation or costs associated with evaluations. And I think what we see a lot is people trying to mitigate those other barriers, those cost-related barriers, Mm -hmm. and not necessarily thinking about how valuable our time is and that Families really may just need a few minutes with the OT to talk about what does this diagnosis mean, or we have these concerns. How do we investigate further? How do we get an evaluation? How do we go about that? What does the next step look like? And it might just be a few minutes of our time. So I thought that was really interesting and really important for us as therapists to remember how important it is that we make that connection with people and not necessarily just throw educational pamphlets or, you know, things like that. I think a lot of research studies, I'm in research a lot, and we think a lot about, okay, well, we need to reduce the barriers to accessing this intervention or this research study. So we're going to provide gift cards or we're going to provide bus passes or things like that. And good for us, we've done this thing. So now our study is accessible. But what this paper informed me a lot about was that it isn't necessarily just providing a gift card or a bus pass. It really is our time. So maybe the greater investment is making sure that we have people that are available to answer those questions face-to-face, over the phone, and to be involved in the community to provide that education and knowledge. And I think being aware that when we're working with populations that are Spanish-speaking, that individuals that are coming to us, Spanish may even be their second language. That for many people that have come from different countries or maybe their families have, they may speak an indigenous language that may make speaking in Spanish even a little bit challenging. But we don't Mm -hmm. necessarily ask those types of questions. We ask if they're from a country where Spanish is the primary language. But I at least haven't seen many surveys or medical health questionnaires that ask about specifically what is your dialect or what is your first language And I think that is something that we really need to be considering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems that point of awareness and knowledge about autism. That seems obvious, like our clients may not know as much about autism as we do if they're just getting that diagnosis. And I think that lots of times we make the assumption that our clients have the same knowledge base that we do. And of course, they may not. Christina, what stood out to you about the article? Many things, Sarah, and I absolutely Mm -hmm. agree with what Catherine shared. She made a lot of great points. I really appreciated seeing a rigorous multi-site trial in this area, and we need so much more research related Mm -hmm. to health equity, looking at barriers to care, access to care, not only for Hispanic Latino communities, but for underserved communities as well. Specifically with regard to this article, it took me back to a little boy that I remember being involved with during early intervention who had been to developmental pediatrics several times before he actually received the diagnosis of autism. And it was a situation where I could very clearly see 
the challenges in communication and the cognitive interactions as well. But because of the language barrier, it was something that was missed by developmental pediatrics. And so he did ultimately receive the diagnosis, which opened up opportunities for more OT, ABA, et cetera, et cetera. And so that case is so prevalent in our society where the article talked about how often the presentation has to be so severe in order for children to be diagnosed that a lot of kids fall through the cracks. A lot, unfortunately, don't receive care. They don't receive early intervention in the first place. And once they do finally get it, oftentimes because of some of these other issues, families will hear that they're getting OT in the school and they'll drop out of outpatient for a variety of reasons. It may be not having transportation, not having interpreters available because they're not funded in the clinical sites, even if they were in early intervention. There are also misconceptions that getting OT in the school is going to meet all of the needs of the child, where often there may be sensory self-care feeding skills that are tremendous challenges to participation and activities of daily living that the families are not aware of. And so as Catherine mentioned earlier, health literacy is so critical in terms of what we can offer through occupational therapy, but also with the healthcare system at large, helping families to understand the processes, the resources, the strategies as well to help meet them where they are. And then oftentimes, not only is the language a barrier, but as the article indicated, the trust is a major barrier. If we're not able to establish that trust to develop rapport with the families, we're going to be very limited in being able to help them. I remember I had the opportunity to teach our pediatrics lab for six years And so many of those sessions, I would stress trust and rapport, trust and rapport with your child, your client, the family, interprofessionally as well. They're so critical to what we do. And with this population, particularly if individuals are undocumented, whether it's the parents or caregivers, maybe it's the child specifically that wasn't born in the United States, there is a lot of fear that is inherent to that, that can really limit seeking services in the first place, even when there's a strong desire to do so. And with this population, often our families with disabilities and special needs, we hear about the isolation, the marital struggles, the divorce rates are higher, There's research about the impact on siblings as well and the challenges that they go through when having a brother or sister who gets all this attention, good and negative at times. And so when you add a language barrier on top Mm -hmm. of that, when you add cultural stigmas that are still very prevalent in many Latin American countries that don't have the same focus and emphasis on inclusion and independence and accessibility that we have now in the mainstream in the United States, although we're still really growing in that area as well, those factors compounded can create unimaginable pressures, stressors for caregivers, for families, And occupational therapy is really poised in a distinctly different way to help, to help increase quality of life, to increase safety, to increase independence and help facilitate transitions into childhood and adulthood as well. But we need so many more resources in our profession. We need more diversity of our student body, which is our future body of practitioners. We need more inclusive academic programs to educate and train our students to be effective and to access resources for their clients. In our profession at large, we need more continuing education opportunities like this to help train the current workforce and provide additional opportunities for us. 
And so I am getting into some of our topics for later. So I will digress. Yeah, no, I want to drill in on all of what you're saying to begin with. Yes, definitely one of my biggest takeaways, like you put really well, is these health disparities are so multifactorial. And I think we all kind of know that, but it was good to see that really spelled out for us and to be reminded of that. One of the challenges, though, when we look at that squarely is, what do we do? There's so many challenges. How can we start addressing these? And what can I do as an individual practitioner? And I think it's easy to get paralyzed just by the scope of the need. So I really wanted to spend the rest of the podcast digging deeper into where you were just going, Christina, with what are the most important things we should be doing as occupational therapy professionals? And I kind of wanted to talk about it like on the individual level, on the level of our clinics and our departments, and then on the national level. But to start with that individual level, my question to both of you is, what are some of the most important things you two think that we could be doing as individuals to start addressing these health disparities? I would just say as individuals, one of the very first steps we have to take is really taking the time to learn about other people. And that may be by reading a research article, making a new friend, going to an event in a different community than your own, trying new foods, and just getting engaged really that type of exposure and those experiences can teach us so much about what is beautiful about other cultures and other people. And that can help break down some of those barriers and dispel some myths that we might have or biases that we may hold in ourselves. So taking that time for self-reflection, reading, if that's how you prefer to learn or listening to a podcast can be a great way to learn so that we can figure out what our own biases are. I know that Christina and I have spent a fair amount of time talking with each other about what biases we have learned that we hold ourselves. And then how do we take the next step? So now that I'm aware of this bias, now I can do something to act and try to negate that. But if we don't know what biases we hold, it's very difficult then to move forwards. So I'd say the first step is really taking the time to try to figure out where do we hold biases? Because we all do. We all have them. And then other individual steps Basically, I think we all have to take that step to learn first. And then I would say beyond that, the next thing that we have to do as therapists is closely examine how our selection of assessments, how our selection of interventions and the things that we use in our interventions may be affected by biases that we hold that we may not even be aware of. So sometimes asking another practitioner can be a great way to learn more about that. But, you know, I think about as an early intervention provider, what toys am I bringing into the house? Is this something that the family would be interested in having their child play with? Or maybe not. Maybe where the family is at is at a very different place. And so I think we need to consider the types very closely, the types of interventions that we select. Because as this article nicely highlighted, we don't always consider at the stage of research health equity and how populations are affected by an intervention. And so even though something may be evidence-based, what is that evidence-based on, I think, is an important question that we always need to be asking. Mm-hmm. I'll hand it over to you now, Christina, if you have any other ideas. Okay, sure. You had some really great points there. And absolutely, we all have biases. And so when we can identify them, process them, talk it out with a trusted individual to work through some of that, it can help us to be more inclusive in our day-to-day interactions. And this is certainly an area where there are, from time to time, different attitudes and values, beliefs that we may not be aware of that are impacting our practice and interactions with individuals. So in addition to that, as individuals, we can learn more about different practices related specifically to occupation, the habits, the roles, the routines of individuals, incorporate them into our evaluation, our intervention, our home programming as well. And in our academic programs, we could be doing a lot more to integrate some of these aspects into the curriculum through our case studies and through our guest speakers, whether it's patient voices, or maybe practitioners that work with these communities. 
We can also engage in the community through partnerships, through low stakes interaction in cultural events, through advocacy related initiatives. There are a lot of great health promotion strategies, health literacy strategies where we can collaborate. And I'll share a quick example. Alegría was a network that we developed for Spanish-speaking families with children with special needs where all of our programs were provided in both English and Spanish. And in the first iteration, we partnered with a bilingual speech therapist, a school special education teacher, and also a social worker to offer a program that was dance-based. There's an article in a special interest quarterly from Home and Community Health many years ago describing what we did. And so through that, we were able to bring in different nonprofit organizations that some were working in maternal health or working in family-based care to really help to strengthen the awareness of these different community programs. And we partnered with different local pediatric agencies as a part of that as well for an Adopt-a-Pinata program, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so each year we had some kind of event with a focus on health literacy and health promotion, but in a fun environment. Alegría means joyfulness. And so our whole premise was to bring quality of life to these families. So the second year we were at our local children's museum, and then we were at a local fun park. And so each year we were able to host Christmas events or a Hispanic American Heritage Month event, and always with this health education aspect to it. So we have a lot of opportunities in OT to go in a lot of directions, applying psychosocial aspects. We had some students who conducted a stress management yoga workshop for some of these families. And we partnered with dental students to provide education about oral health. But then the needs are pretty tremendous. So lots of opportunities for OT. I love that idea as a beginning low stakes start is thinking about our partnerships. Like I'm thinking of our clinics and departments here in my small town in Nebraska. And that's something we could absolutely be doing. I see that as being really applicable to really any clinic or department. Catherine, I want to ask you a similar question in a slightly different way. Let's say you're meeting as a team with the people in your clinic you guys can just see the disparity in the early diagnosis between your Latino and non-Latino clients, the autism diagnosis. What are some practical first steps that you would take as a team to start addressing this? I think for me and the people that I work with, the first step is to really speak with a family about what concerns they have for their child because those disparities in early identification of autism are sometimes because of difficulties with understanding the healthcare system or difficulties with knowing where to get an appointment or getting an appointment or having access to an interpreter. And sometimes it's because there's maybe differences in how we perceive what is a disability and what is a problematic behavior. And the article talked a little bit about that perception of problematic behaviors as well. And I think when we talk with families, we have to have a really good understanding of what I'm seeing and why maybe this is of concern to me. And so I would like this child to go forward with an evaluation for autism and what the family is seeing at home and what they perceive as the challenges with that child's development and participation in their activities of everyday living. You know, are they able to do the things that they need to do as part of the family and so I really view it as our role to talk to the family about why does this behavior that may seem small now, how does that relate to their overall development and their ability to engage in other types of learning activities? When we're with little ones, with those zero to three-year-olds, a small skill like eye contact, for example, it seems like a very small skill, but it's only when you put it in the context of that it's this eye contact that helps with developing social skills and watching my face to learn language and an interest for imitation and interaction that can emerge from that seemingly small skill of eye contact. So I think it's really that communication. And so when we see on a team where maybe there's a disparity in age, we have to look a little bit deeper into that question. 
Is it because we aren't doing our job and providing interpreters or providing opportunities for families to receive evaluations for that? Or maybe we aren't doing a good enough job about communicating what those red flags are that bring a child in for evaluation? Or is it something where we really need to identify what the concerns are of the family? I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I think on our clinic and team level, if we can see this pattern playing out where we see the later diagnosis of our Latino clients' autism diagnosis, Mm -hmm. and it's a systemic problem, are there structural things our team should be doing to address that? I mean, I would use a health equity framework and think about that as a multi-layered response. I think as individuals, we have to think about this as a multi-layered issue. There isn't one answer for getting families an earlier diagnosis of autism, I don't think. I think we have to consider structures of power and how inequities have been built into those structures that have made it more difficult. And Christina said it really nicely earlier that it's an unimaginable amount of barriers that some families may be having to overcome in order to engage in the healthcare system that we can't necessarily know all, and they aren't necessarily going to share with us what all of those barriers are because trust is at the heart of it. So there is a model called the health equity framework. And I think the answer lies in looking at every level. We can't just look at the individual or at the law, for example. We need to be looking at the relationships and networks. So how is that family connected to the healthcare system, to other people in their community? Do they know anybody else with this diagnosis that they can talk to? Have we connected them with other families that have children with similar behaviors or a similar diagnosis? Have we considered all the individual factors like language or what their previous exposure is to disability or to different diagnoses? Is there anybody else in the family with a similar diagnosis? Are there other individuals living in the home that may be putting pressure on the caregivers to get a diagnosis or not to get a diagnosis? Are there other potential biological things occurring with the child or with a family that could be affecting their behavior? And then again, like I had mentioned, we always need to be considering those systems of power Mm. and how at each level that has affected the family and the child's ability to come to clinic or to get a diagnosis. Do you have information on this health equity framework you could share with me, Catherine? Yeah, sure. Put that in our show notes. I see that as being a great tool to bring before our teams to start some of these conversations. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'll share that in the show notes. Before our hour wraps up, I definitely want to talk to you guys about what we can be doing on this national level and as a profession. I know there's a lot of things that we could be doing, but I want to give time to both of you to say one or two things that you're especially passionate about that we could be doing at that national level level as an occupational therapy profession? Maybe starting with you, Christina. So absolutely. With our academic programs, with our clinical departments and organizations, with our professional associations at the state level, at the national level, we really should have initiatives related to this area. There's a great resource through the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services called the National Class Standards. They are the culturally and linguistically appropriate services standards. They provide 15 different standards that we should be adhering to in our service delivery to promote health equity, quality care, responsive care for our communities and our clients. But sadly, most people have never even heard of them, not just in occupational therapy, but across healthcare. So they were developed back in the early 2000s, and then they were revised in 2013. And the idea was that federally funded institutions had to follow these. And so you are starting to see accrediting bodies having more of a focus in this area. But the 15 standards cover governance, leadership, the workforce, also community engagement, continuous improvement, accountability, collecting data, and four out of the 15 have to do with communication and language assistance. So not just having interpreters available, 
but having individuals who are qualified in both languages available, having signage available, multimedia available in languages that are commonly found in the community. And so in occupational therapy, we have a dearth of knowledge (laughs) and resources in this area. Through COTAD, we've been trying to develop some different resources that are posted on our website. Catherine and I have been collaborating on that for quite some time. But we as a profession, the Hispanic Latino community is the largest minority group nationwide, Mm -hmm. nationwide, almost 20%, according to the most recent census back in 2010. So that doesn't even include the most recent data from 2020. And looking at the demographic numbers, that is the fastest growing population with children and in our communities So we really should be, as individuals, as organizations, putting resources financially into this area with our staff recruitment, our retention, our staff development initiatives, and with our community engagement to partner with churches or athletic groups or social groups or civic groups. In our area, there's a Chamber of Commerce initiative around Latino-owned businesses, So the opportunities are there if we as individuals are able to step up and lead, support, and advocate in these areas. I'll definitely link to those class standards in our show notes. I would be someone who those would be new to. And that's such a reminder to me of there are resources out there if we look for them, like if we're asking the right questions. So I'll link to those for sure. Catherine... For you on the national level, what are one to two things that you would love to see us acting on as a profession related to these health disparities that we're talking about? I would like us as a profession to be working collaboratively with people from different populations to identify where our gaps are. Mm. I don't think as a profession necessarily we can identify all of the gaps that exist. We know that there are disparities and that there are people that are receiving care and people that are not receiving care, but what those answers are, are not necessarily as clear. So as a profession, I think we should be engaging in open dialogue with consumers, with students, with potential students, and with our faculty and practitioners to identify where are people experiencing challenges with providing care or with accessing care. Where I work at Washington University a year ago or so, we used an approach called open space technology, which basically means that you don't have an agenda for the meeting, but that you set a topic and you maybe give some background information on that topic. And then you let everybody else come to you with what they perceive as the most important items related to that topic. And I think using approaches like that, where we go to the community and say, we want to provide services in as many spaces as we can. Tell us what you think and just gather information in ways like that rather than trying to set the agenda ourselves, I think might be a good approach. I also think as a profession, we should at all levels be encouraging people to get involved in different methods of learning. So I think that could be as students getting involved in a COTAD chapter or as practitioners being involved with COTAD statewide initiatives or with educational initiatives with COTAD ed and making sure that we enable as a profession and support with our time and with financial resources, having spaces for those types of dialogues so that we can address them, and then come up with action items for trying to help. I think we are now beyond the point of just recognizing them, and it is really time to act and making sure that from the top down, there is an investment of time and money towards those types of things, Mm -hmm. (laughs) those types of conversations. Yeah. And I'll just add one more thing. I think it's really important for us to think about our personal why. Mm -hmm. Why did we choose this profession in the first place? What a good point, Christina. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of us, it was that we wanted to help people and it wasn't 
people who looked a certain way or talked a certain way or were necessarily from a certain place, but we really need to be open to meeting the needs in our communities across the broad spectrum that we have and just be open to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so thankful to both of you for being an example of what it looks like to be active on these issues and pursuing them in your career. I think one of my takeaways from this podcast will just be how this is also fueled by your friendship and by the teamwork that you do. Like when we think about tackling these issues, we're not doing it alone. We should have friends and we should have community around us. So it's very important work, but it's also a joy to be doing something meaningful as a community and We should be thinking of our occupational therapy work, not just as us in the room with the patient, that one-on-one work, but taking joy in what we could accomplish as a department and as a profession when we band together on some of these issues. We're at the end of our time for today. I would love to hear just if you guys have one final thought to share with us. Sure. Doing work to advance health equity is challenging and we can never know exactly the best way to do things. We're going to mess up. And I think basically what you said, Sarah, it's important to do it together, to find your crowd, to find like-minded practitioners and friends that you can work with so that it can be fun and rewarding. And there is power in voices coming together. And when you have more voices, you're able to see more of what maybe you didn't see on your own. You know, I saw this one area that really needs some advocacy and maybe Christina is able to share a different perspective that helps me understand why that is that way. But I guess the take-home message is work together. Volunteer advocacy can be stressful and it can be time-consuming and exhausting and it can weigh you down. I think that you can really make it a fun and joyful experience by tying it to the things that you care about most. So I would add, and I absolutely agree with Catherine on this, I would add that we have to accept that we are the gatekeepers to Mm. accessible services in occupational therapy for all communities. And recognizing and identifying that if only 80% of the population is able to access our services, that's a major problem Mm -hmm. on a national scale, on an ethical scale as well. When we talk about equity and inequity, we've had so many different movements related to civil rights for women's rights, for LGBTQIA plus rights, for disability rights. It goes on and on, but we're still continuing to have these different structural, systemic, social challenges that are serving as barriers for these communities. And we as individuals need to recognize that. And then, as Catherine said earlier, we need to choose to act. And it can feel overwhelming and we can't do everything But there's that famous quote, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so through collaboration, we can help to incite change in our academic programs, in our research funding mechanisms, in our national associations, in our state associations. So one step at a time to help to move towards Vision 2025 of the AOTA. I'm on the board of directors now, so I've been really thrilled about some of the major steps that we've been taking, and I hope we'll continue to grow in this area as a profession in the future and as an association. But as individuals, organizations, academic programs, we continue to move forward to a more inclusive, equitable profession and society, meeting ultimately our society's needs. I would like to add, I don't know if this is helpful. That was so beautifully said, Christina. That sounded like a presidential speech. (laughs) It did. Future AOTA president on the call today. Yes. (laughs) She knows I'm dead serious and I plan to make that happen. I'm serious. But I would like to add (laughs) that I hope that younger practitioners and students know how much 
so many people in our profession really care. And Mm -hmm. if you are interested in a topic or you see somebody whose work you admire or you would like to build off of, reach out, you know, send an email or connect with them online in some other way or attend a presentation and follow up with them afterwards to talk one-on-one. I think many people really would love to work and collaborate with individuals. And I know for me anyways, when I was a student and still, I'm still working on this. I'm like, I get very nervous talking to people that I don't know. And if I don't know exactly what to say, or if I don't have exactly what I want to bring up with them, particularly well-known OTs or people that have been in the OT profession for a long time, I get a lot of anxiety about talking or just introducing myself. So I think what I would like to pass on to others is that the worst that could happen is that they don't respond to your email. And that's not that big of a deal. But the best that could happen is that you gain a new mentor, a new friend, a new network of people to work with and collaborate with. And that could be the network that brings about change and new opportunities for you and for others. So connect, network, and don't be afraid to reach out. Absolutely. We do have such amazing people in our profession. And I thank you both for the work that you've done. And this conversation today does make me excited for the future of our profession. Sometimes I don't feel that way, but I do (laughs) after talking to you guys. So thank you. And hopefully we continue to have more and more conversations like this. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us and for providing this really great resource for our practitioners and students. Wow, you all, I was not expecting this to be my takeaway from this topic, but I was so inspired by these women and how their friendship and the community that they formed has really fueled them to tackle these tough topics together. And so I hope as you head into your workplace, as you see just tough situations arise, whether it's something related to racial and ethnic health disparities or something else, that one of your thoughts is, who can I connect with so I'm not tackling this alone? And what does my professional community look like among fellow OTs? And are we building each other up to do this really important work? And I did want to remind you that this course is eligible for continuing education credit. If you are interested in earning a certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com. There you can sign in or sign up for the club. It is currently just $49 to join our club. So I really encourage you to take the plunge and sign up and have access to uh, not only this course, but the many courses that we have in there. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.